Welcome back, everyone, to a new episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. As a pianist, I love speaking with other musicians who are non-pianists because there's always something to learn. They give me a fresh and new perspective on musical ideas, approaches to interpretation or practicing, and new sources of inspiration. So today I'm excited to introduce Katrin Mydell to you all. She is someone I have known for several years. And in fact, we have a dear friend in common. So I heard about her even before I met her, proving just how small our musical world is. But let's not delay the conversation any longer and get right to it so we can hear what she has to share with us. Hello, Katrin. Hi, baby. Let's get started with just a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today. I am the Associate Professor of Viola at the Schwab School of Music at Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia. Before that, I was teaching at Ball State University in Indiana. Before that, I taught at Texas Tech University. Before that, I did my doctorate at the University of North Texas. Um, I did my master's degree at New England Conservatory and I did my bachelor's degrees at Boston University, where I got degrees in psychology and string performance on both violin and viola. And before that, so going way back, um, I started playing the violin at around the age of five. My mom said, do you want to play violin like your big sister? And of course, like any little sister, I said, yes. So started on violin at around five. It was not always a love relationship <laughs> but over the years it became a love relationship and yeah so I played violin for a long time in high school I joined the youth symphony the Boston uh, greater Boston youth symphony orchestra and that's when I really started to love music but when when I was going to go to college I decided I didn't want to do music as a profession haha <laughs> <laughs> so I actually did not apply to any music programs um, and I just went to BU as a liberal arts major but once I was there I really missed playing an orchestra and I missed you know the the musical community so they told me that I could I could play in the orchestra but I'd have to be a music major so I auditioned for the program, I got in, and next thing you know, there I am double majoring just so that I could play music. <laughs> so that's basically how it happened. And then also in my, um, in my junior year, I met my viola, and that's when everything changed. So from, from there, I switched from violin, and the rest is history. Yeah, I, I'm interested to hear about the journey from a violinist to a violist. How was that transition? And what do you mean by junior year you met your viola? Like what was the encounter like? Okay, so it might be a little bit rose colored at this point, And I don't remember the details all that well. Uh, this was 2001, so I'm dating myself here. Basically what happened was I am very tall, <laughs> I'm very, very long. So I'm six feet tall, my arms are very long. And people had always been telling me, oh, why do you play violin? You should play the viola. And I'm like, why would I want to play the viola? I play the violin. But through the years going to festival, summer festivals and stuff, you know, I would borrow somebody's viola or try it out. And I was like, oh, there's something nice about this. And um, so the way I remember the story, and it, it might be slightly different if my sister or one of my parents were to tell it, but uh, the way I remember it is, as I mentioned before, my sister also played the violin and she, she did not go the professional route. 
but she was very, she is a very good amateur violin player or non-professional. I don't like that term, amateur, non-professional. She's a very good non-professional violinist. And she was moving to Europe and my parents wanted to give her a nice gift of a new instrument. So she and I went down to New York City where we went to a string shop and we were there for hours and hours trying out violins, you know, bows and kind of trying to find something that might work for her. And while we were there, the owner of the shop said, have you ever played the viola? And I said, well, yeah, but I mean, I'm a violinist. And he said, I, I want to show you this instrument. And I was like, okay. And he he went out into the back and he he brought it out. And it, I, I swear it was like one of those angel moments where the light was sort of like shining from out of the instrument. And there was like a, ah in the background. And I don't know, something about that meeting. It really was. It was like I met the viola and I played on it and I didn't really know what I was doing because I didn't know any of the, the differences between the two instruments at the time. But I really fell in love with it. I, I completely fell in love with this instrument that I didn't play. And on our way home back to Boston, um, or maybe once we'd already gotten there, I told my parents, you know, there was there was something there. And a couple of weeks later, my I think it was my mom called and said, Are, can you be serious about this viola thing? Because if so, you know, we can get you the, the viola. And I was like, yeah, I'll be serious about it. And next thing you know, I have this amazing instrument and it really did shape the rest of my future. I think the the passion for playing reinvigorated and and it, it just it was just the right choice. Yeah. So what was that conversation like with your teacher? I assume at that point you were taking violin lessons and did you stay with the same teacher and just switch over to viola or did you have to switch over to another teacher in a different studio? No, actually what I did was I finished up my last two years taking both violin and viola lessons. So I continued with my violin teacher, Dana Mazurkiewicz. So I did a whole four years with her. And then starting my junior year, I added viola with Michelle LaCourse. And so for, for my first two years, I was in orchestra and chamber music as a violinist. In my second two years, I was in orchestra as a violist and chamber music. I went to both studio classes. I did senior recitals on both instruments. And I guess I was sort of a switch hitter for those two years. And then as I was doing my, my graduate school auditions and applying for, I actually applied for PhD programs in neuroscience also. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but I got into NEC and at, at the time, and I, I think still it's one of the strongest viola programs in the country. And it was, it just seemed like, well, I mean, you don't look a gift horse in the mouth. If you get into NEC, you go to NEC. So I went to NEC. So, I mean, one of the other striking things about your story is the fact that you very briefly mentioned that you were a psychology major and a music major. And then now this story has flushed out and it seems like you were like a dual track music major in violin and viola and you did, you know, two senior recitals. So the question is for our young listeners who are in college and listening to this, how did you survive that period in your life? I'm an overachiever. Uh, this is something I've always, I don't know if struggled is the right word, but something I've always known about myself. And I tend to do, personally, I, I do best when I have a lot of different projects going. So I don't know that it, it was a matter of survival. It, it was just 
that was how it was. And because that's how it was, that's what I had to do. I, I also worked at a neuroscience lab at Harvard across the river, and I was a resident assistant also. So that helped because I had free housing. Living in Boston is, is not for the faint of heart. It's extremely expensive even back then. So it, I don't know, it's, it's just, it was what needed to happen. So it was what happened. And I was passionate about all the things I was doing. So that made it a lot easier. You know, if, if you have to do something that you really don't want to do, it's a lot more difficult to add that into the, into your everyday life. But if you're excited about what you're doing, go for it and just be organized. There was also there wasn't like YouTube back then, you know, and I didn't have a cell phone. So, um, <laughs> so and and my cell phone at, at some point I did get one, but it literally was for phone calls, and that was it. So, not nearly as many distractions as there are now. Hmm. So let's back up in your story. Do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a child got you hooked on music? I do. I'm sure there were some when I was really young, but what really stands out was my sophomore year in high school, I was accepted into the senior gypso. So this was the senior orchestra of the Greater Boston Youth Symphony Orchestras, which I think now is just the GYSO. But we did a couple of really amazing pieces that year. We did West Side Story, and we did also Shostakovich Five. And especially the Shostakovich, just wow. And, and, and being in a room of people who were my age, who were interested in the same thing that I was interested in and, and collaborating on this just masterful piece of music and something I wasn't really familiar with because we, we did listen to music at home, but generally we didn't listen to crazy, you know, Shostakovich, stuff like that. So it was, it was like Schumann and very lyrical. And, and so listening to something that had so much passion and fire and, and anger and yeah, it, it was, it was great. And, and yeah, so it was Shosti five. <laughs> and what was practicing like for you as a child? Did your parents have to force you to do it or were you self-motivated? The way I remember it is that I was definitely not self-motivated. I remember being strictly told I needed to go practice which caused strife between <laughs> between my mother and myself. But you know what? In, in the end, I completely agree with her. I think she was right. She recognized that there was something in me that needed this. And I'm glad that she pushed me. I'm glad that she didn't let me quit when I told her I wanted to quit. I think I was 13 or something. I don't want to do this anymore. I was very strange. You know, I was very tall, played the violin pretty well. Uh, my mom is Russian also, so I spoke Russian. I was definitely not a popular kid. <laughs> I was very, very weird. So, you know, I thought maybe if I could just get rid of one of these weirdisms, I would be more well-liked. But, you know, high school is dumb. And <laughs> once you get through it, you find your own, your own path. And um, I'm, I'm very glad that my mom made me practice, basically. Yeah. Yeah, I like that because a lot of times when I ask this question, it seems like the majority of the time, 
everyone, you know, these professional musicians say, oh, no, I loved practicing, you know, it was my joy and passion from an early childhood. Um, occasionally, you know, it seems like maybe 10% of the time we get people that say, well, you know, that was a bit of a struggle. And I think that gives hope to parents and students who are listening, who are like, you know, my child does not love practicing. I really have to kind of force them to do it and get them into the habit of doing it. And it does cause, you know, in your words, strife in the home. But it's so promising to hear your story because it sounds like there's payoff in the end if they just endure. Yeah, but I think at the same time, though, like you have to you have to recognize whether your child really hates it or if they're just sort of fighting back to fight back. And I think I was fighting back to fight back. Yeah. So why are you a musician and teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path? It's hard to zero in on just one person or even just a few people. I am a musician because that's the way I was born. I don't think it's something you choose. I, some, I think it's something that you are latently born with. You know, just like some people must be artists or some people must be linguists or I don't know. We could go political on that one, but I'm not going to. So I, I am a musician because that's the way I was born. And I'm just grateful that I was given the outlet, was given the opportunity to have that outlet. My first long-term violin teacher is sort of like a second mother. <clears throat> I studied with her, gosh, it must have been like 12 years or something like that from, I don't know, age nine or something like that until I got to college. So, you know, that, that weekly interaction with another person she was incredibly influential in my life. And then when I found viola, my, my first teacher, Michelle, of course, is a Karen Tuttle coordination teacher. And uh, Karen Tuttle was a very incredible violist who really changed, she really changed the, the face of viola playing in the United States. She was a student of William Primrose and she basically made viola comfortable it's a very awkward instrument. And um, she, she came up with a, a system. It's not really a system, but it's, it's called coordination. And it's, it's a way of using your body and your spirit to play in the most comfortable way possible while still being emotionally fulfilling. And that system, the, the, the Tuttle system, really changed my world. So started studying that with Michelle. And then at NEC, I studied with Carol Rodland. And I actually had a, a debilitating injury right before I started uh, my master's degree. So I, I had lost feeling in my left arm. And I think this was partially due to bad playing habits and partially due to some emotional trauma. And when I started my master's degree, I couldn't play. I literally could not play. I couldn't move my arm into the right direction. And here I am at this incredible music school, and I can't do what I'm there to do. And Carol, she, she basically said, all right, well, let's start from the beginning. And when I say start from the beginning, I mean the beginning, like we went back to, okay, so let's completely reorganize the way your body sits. That sounded weird. How do I put that? The, the structure, like, like what I was doing, I think I must have been doing, I, I, I know I had a bit of a, a turn in my shoulder. So like this and then the, the instrument on that. And so I was putting a lot of pressure on the thoracic outlet, which is a bundle of nerves that goes through from your spine out to your arm. And she basically like 
repositioned me and said, okay, this is the way your, your structure is. This is the way your bones are put together. We need to use, we need to find a way to make the viola fit you rather than you contort yourself to fit the viola. And she, she, you know, we would, we would do a couple of minutes at a time. And then when it started to hurt, we would talk about some other musical ideas and keep going. And she was really great in that she would meet me several times throughout the week for these short little bursts, because that's all my body could do at the time. And her, her passion and her desire to help me were really incredible. So I, I, I always think of Carol Rodland as sort of my spirit guru. She, she saved me. So, yeah, so I guess, you know, when, when I was younger, I always said, when I grow up, I want to be Carol Rodland. So, <laughs> so she was incredibly influential, but at the same time, you know, all of my teachers were, and, and after, after I finished with Carol, I went to North Texas where I studied with Susan Dubois, and she was also just incredible. And I was lucky enough to, to be able to participate in master classes and, and observe lessons with Kim Kashkashian, who also taught at NEC. So I feel like I had a, an incredible network of really strong viola teachers and it's due to all of them, but it wouldn't have happened had I not had the, the first help from first my parents and my, my young violin teachers and all of my violin teachers as well. How long did that injury recovery take so that you were back to 100%? I had to take my second semester of my master's degree off because I still couldn't participate in orchestra and chamber music. So I took off that spring semester. I was doing physical therapy, occupational therapy, massage therapy, practicing. <laughs> my, my occupational therapist was really incredible. She, she started me on a 30-second per day playing routine I mean it was crazy like you tune your instrument you get you start your timer you have 30 seconds that's it you're done for the day and it took about nine months to get up to where I could play for about a half hour without hurting so it was it was a very very long-term rehabilitation but you know now now that I'm well through it I think it was a blessing in disguise because it really taught me to be efficient when you only have 30 seconds or three minutes or something like that, you have to know what it is you're trying to accomplish in that time frame. So it helped me become more organized and also super aware. And also this, this Tuttle method, you really learn to understand your body and the way that your body mechanics work. So I, I think that because of, because of that injury, I am a much more effective teacher. I see tension and I see unsupportive habits a lot in students and I'm very I'm good at guiding students out of pain just like Carol was good at guiding me out of pain so that's a bit of an aside so overall it took me about nine months to get back to a place where I could play and all told I'd say it was probably 11 months or maybe a year until I was really fully back but by that point I was a completely different player because I, I had completely reworked everything when you said that your occupational therapist had you practice 30 seconds at a time, was it 30 seconds for the whole day and that was it for the day? That's how it started. Yeah, that's how it started. So I think it was, I can't remember exactly the, the, the structure of this timetable she gave me, but day one was 30 seconds. Day two, I think was twice 30 seconds. And so after I think the first month, it was like I could play for maybe eight minutes at a time. Um, so it was, it was extremely slow. It was extremely slow, but it worked. Was there ever any fear on your part 
that you would never recover. There was. Yep, there was. And and I, <laughs> the, one of the first neurologists I went to, because it, it seemed like a neurological problem, you know, I, my arm has lost strength. I can't feel it quite right. I went to a neurologist and was trying to figure out what was what was wrong. And he said, well, just quit. Then you'll be fine. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I found a new neurologist. <laughs> because what, what kind of help is that? Yeah, there, there, there was. There was a lot of fear that, that I would never recover. But I'm also very stubborn. I said I'm, I'm passionate and I'm, I'm good at working a lot of different angles at the same time. This was not the thing that was going to make me stop. I had just found this lovely instrument. I was at NEC. I had the best teacher in the whole wide world. No way. <laughs> so I kept at it. Yeah. I think you've hinted at this next question. What was your family's relationship with music like? So my sister played violin, as you know. Um, she's two and a half years older than I am. My father loves classical guitar and has always, well, during my lifetime anyway, he always played classical guitar. He's very passionate about guitar. And uh, my mom was not is not a musician at all, but we always had classical music playing in the house. So my, my dad grew up in, in a place where his parents were always playing classical music. So he played classical music. So it w- I was exposed to it a lot, just, you know, by records and CDs and just listening. Uh, we would go to concerts. I remember, you know, going to orchestra concerts or recitals or whatever. So it was, it was always in the house. And maybe you've already answered this question. What are some challenges you have encountered as a musician? Debilitating playing injury, notwithstanding. I think the, maybe the one that most of us struggle with at some point in our career is the feeling of inadequacy and being afraid that you're not going to get to a point where you're able to sustain this and pay your bills. <laughs> I don't know of anyone actually who's a professional musician who at some point didn't struggle with, well, what am I doing with my life? You know, this, this gig is going to give me $300, but that's not enough to pay the phone bill and the rent or whatever it is. But I really feel as though this field, if you are passionate about what you do, there is enough room for everybody. You just need to find the right path for you. And it's not always going to be cut and dry. And it's, it's not always black and white. Sometimes things happen and you have to go with the flow. Yeah, I think just the the feeling of not really knowing what I'm doing with my life. And once I finished my doctorate, I didn't get a job right away. And I was like, well, what now what? I've just spent the last 13 and a half years in college and I have four degrees and I don't have a job. What is this? And and working jobs that you didn't want to do. Like I was I was teaching in the public school these 23 minute lessons or 30 minute lessons for $23. I think it's, it's what it was, $23 for, yeah, 30 minutes with kids who just don't want to do it. But, you know, you have to take those kinds of jobs so that, so that you can pay the rent. But if, if you can frame the jobs you don't want to do as opportunities for betterment, opportunities for, so maybe, you know, I'm working on bow hold with a kid who doesn't want to learn bow hold. At the same time, I can be thinking about ways that I can find new words to describe the bowholes or a different analogy or something like that, that then will help me with the next kid. So I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just a very optimistic person, but I always tried to find the, the best in all of the things I didn't want to be doing. 
and I think that helps. Yeah. How long was that period in your life after graduating from your doctorate and getting a full-time job? How long was that intermediate period? It was one year. So I had one, one academic year where I, I was teaching adjunct at Texas Women's University. So that was good. You know, I, I already had that, that first line on, on my CV. A one-year position opened at Texas Tech University and I applied for it and I was lucky enough to, to get it. And from there, that really launched my career. So thanks to the team who hired me back at Texas Tech. Yeah, so, so one year. What are some of your favorite memories as a teacher? It's always the aha moment when you're describing something and you're trying to get the student to, to tweak this or that, and then they do it and their eyes get big because they felt it and they heard it. That, I love the aha moment. And yeah, that's, that's definitely my favorite. And, and also now that I've been teaching for as long as I have been, I've cycled through quite a number of students, you know, who start as freshmen, they end as seniors or start as, you know, in, in their graduate program and, and their program. And, and in their final recital, sitting in the audience and turning off the teacher brain as, as much as I can, turning off the teacher brain and, and just enjoying what they're doing and thinking about what they sounded like, how they looked when they first came for their first trial lesson or their first couple of lessons and just seeing the progress and the, um, the growth, really. And, and then also feeling really proud that they got there because I helped them. That's really satisfying. So speaking of um, success in students, what would you say is the balance between talent and work ethic when it comes to determining success in the student? Personally, and I know that not everyone feels this way. Personally, I think talent is sort of a, I don't even know how, how to describe what I think talent is. I think it's all about work ethic. <laughs> That's what it is. I think 100%, if you are committed to doing it, you can do it. As long as your your physical and mental connection is where your brain tells your body to do something and then your body can do it, as long as you have that and you have the desire and you have someone who can tell you what to do, then I think you can do it. So while talent probably does play some role what I find a lot of people say is, oh, he's so talented, but really it's, he's worked really hard. So, so there. <laughs> I think that answer is completely expected and consistent with what our conversation has kind of um, led us to. Uh, I would have predicted that answer from you just carrying your recovery journey and your educational path. You are one determined person. I am. Yeah, I am. Do you have any musical or pedagogical projects you are currently working on? So yes and no. What I wanted to tell you about was for the last eight years, I have been on the board of the American Viola Society. And for the last two and a half years, I was working as the host and the coordinator of the 2022 American Viola Society Festival and 47th International Viola Congress. So at the beginning of June, I hosted this international conference that I had organized, and it was four and a half days of viola awesomeness at my school, at the Schwab School, with international violists from, you know, all over the place. I think our, our farthest international internationals came from New Zealand. We had a bunch from Poland, a lot from Canada, 
And there's definitely a lot of Americans. And unfortunately, a lot of people also, I think, still due to COVID switched to a virtual format. But in the end, we had an exceptionally successful festival in Congress. And it's kind of crazy that it's over because it really has taken up my entire life for the last two years. So now, honestly, my project is to try to remember how to play viola again, because I kind of (laughs) put everything on hold so that I can do this organizing events management. I had no idea that that's what this would be. I thought it would just be a little, you know, get together and organize some concerts. But no, there's security and housing and meal plans and trips from the airport and whatever, all, all kinds of organizational aspects that I hadn't considered when I took on the project. So I'm incredibly grateful to my team and everybody that that worked so hard to make it happen. And in the end, it was a really great event. And I'm still sort of recovering from the amount of effort it took to make that happen. Like I said, slowly starting to actually play viola again, because I actually have some concerts coming up. So I need to get familiar with that again. So for a young professional who has never organized or coordinated an event of that magnitude, what suggestions would you give them in terms of how they can prepare for that? Or what what suggestions would you give to yourself from two years ago? I hate to say this, but be married to your cell phone and answer every single email that you get as soon as you get it. or find some system of unreading or or whatever you need to do so that things that do need to be dealt with that you can't deal with at the m- minute that you read it happens. That's one thing that I've found most frustrating about this younger generation of, of students. They'll read an email, they won't respond to it, and then it's gone. That's it. Um, I find that exceedingly frustrating. So for all of you young people out there, respond to emails, because as old people, that's how we function. You have to respond to emails rely on people who have other knowledge, like knowledge of things. So I I worked a lot with like the caterer. I've I've never done catering before and just asking her a lot of questions or the printer for the program books and, you know, various swag that we had asking questions because I don't know anything about printing. I don't know anything about designing programs or or anything like that. So just, and and I, I think the sort of umbrella of all of that is, be kind and be open and be willing to admit when you don't know what you're doing and ask for help in a nutshell, but really just answer your emails. Thank you for that. Do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching? I do. Of course I do. I absolutely love knitting. I'm a ridiculous knitter. I knit a lot. (laughs) So that's kind of my at home quiet time hobby is I knit, I read, I really love to hike and be outdoors. So my husband and I have a camper van and we travel usually in in the Western United States. We'll go hiking and climbing and just relaxing out out in the wilderness away from people. Do you find that knitting is hard on your hands ever? Yes, I do. But I'm also really stubborn and I really like doing it. (laughs) So I do it. I think as with music, if you are tense, then it's going to be worse than if you're not. So it's all about finding a technique that minimizes tension. So at this point, I think I gotten pretty good at knitting also and just holding the needles and the thread or the yarn in a way that um, minimizes any amount of tension. But yeah, sometimes my hand gets a little cramped and I'll, you know, stop for the day. 
Yeah, I think I see a reoccurring theme in your life. Stubbornness is a theme. <laughs> so here's our very last question. Do you have any advice for young musical professionals and teachers as they embark on their careers and enter professional life? I do. Sort of mentioned it before. Respond to your emails. But more, more than that, stay true to yourself and don't forget why it is that you're doing what you're doing. And most importantly, be kind. I think it doesn't always seem like it, but there are enough opportunities for everyone who's driven to do the work. We're in a field of passion. So you have to be passionate to succeed. And if you are passionate, I believe that you will succeed. But it's also a field that's highly dependent on interpersonal skills. So be kind, always tell the truth, be a good colleague, respond to emails, and, and be yourself. Stay with your inner truth. I am a musician. I love what I do. Therefore, I want to share that love with everybody else. Well, Katrin, this has been a delightful conversation. I knew it would be. I had a feeling that I would really enjoy this conversation and uh, my feelings came true. I really enjoyed hearing about your stories. I had no idea that you started out as a violinist and hearing that transition was fascinating and hearing about your journey um, to recovery. Also, I, I'm hopeful will help many of our listeners who either have students dealing with injuries or they themselves are dealing with injuries. So thank you so much for being so open about that uh, topic. So with that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students. Thank you.